Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. This is episode two of Resurrection. If you haven't heard the first episode yet, go back and start there. And just a note on content, this episode contains descriptions of sex, so maybe not the best to listen with kids around. Welcome back to Resurrection. I'm Dane Stewart, and in this podcast, I uncover the life of Daryl Allen, a bisexual man and an amateur playwright. I do this by reading the letters he sent to his lover, Dan Wiley, through the 1970s and 80s. As we learn about the progression of their relationship, we also learn about the progression of the AIDS crisis in the U.S. and Canada. January 21st, 1981. Dear Danny, I'm starting this letter and I'm not even certain it will ever be mailed. I have a lot of anger deep inside me. It will be a long time before it will go away. If it does. When I look back on the time we've known each other, I really wonder what the fuck were we doing? On Christmas Eve, 1980, Dan and Daryl's relationship came crashing to a halt. I question whether you ever really loved me in a physical, sexual way. Dan did something that hurt Daryl deeply, something that humiliated him, something that I think many of us have done, in one form or another. If all you wanted all this time was an older friend who was great at listening to your problems, why in the hell didn't you go for that at the beginning? Relationships are complicated full of pain and sometimes humiliation. But for queer people, we deal with those feelings all the time. Hurt and humiliation are central parts of the queer experience. And as shitty as that is, sometimes learning to deal with those feelings can help us transform ourselves and our relationships into something new. Of course, I still love you. But I'm not certain, at least for the moment, whether I like you. 
I'm going to tell you what happened that night. But first, to answer Daryl's question, did he still like Dan? Let's jump ahead. Ten years. Exactly ten years. To Christmas Eve, 1990. Dan is living in Toronto with a new partner, Richard. They've been together since the early 80s. And Daryl, well, Daryl found love with a man named Jonathan, who ended up supporting him through one of the hardest experiences of both their lives. He came Christmas before he came to spend it with us and... Daryl came to visit Dan the Christmas before he died. You could tell he was sick. You could tell it might be the last time we get to see him. And he was brave. He was brave. He was happy to be there, happy to share the time with us. He was able to know that Jonathan wouldn't be left completely alone, that that we would be there as long as Jonathan wanted us to be there. I just remember Christmas dinner and, and, and him saying, you know, how much he loved being around everybody and... You know, we, we, Richard and I were living in Toronto at the time, and he just felt, felt very comfortable and very, very loved and very, uh, he would get tired. Uh, he had lymphoma, so he would get tired at times, and we'd just go in the room with him and let him sleep while we were there, and, and then he'd wake up and share more good times with us. And so you see, whatever anger Daryl held for Dan from that fight 10 years earlier, however big that anger was, Daryl did still like him. I thought for a long time about how to tell this part of the story, and then I listened to these anecdotes, and it occurred to me. Take one day of the year. Christmas. And look at two men and how they come together over a decade. If you look at just one day, what can you learn? About them? about their relationship, about a virus that ravaged a community, and about yourself. This is Daryl and Dan, told through four Christmases. This is Resurrection, a podcast that tells the stories of ordinary queer people who were lost to HIV. Let's go back to that fight, Christmas 1980, the first Christmas. Dan does something to humiliate Daryl. And honestly, I have mixed feelings about putting this story, this very private story, into this very public space. But I think that if you understand Dan, and if you understand the dynamic he shared with Daryl, that you'll understand why he did this. Because you might have done similar things when you were young and struggling to sort through the prickly parts of sex and love and vulnerability. So stick with me for a moment, and let's learn a bit more about Dan. I didn't come out. I was forced out. Uh, I had this little love affair with an older, not an older, he was one or two years older than me, but he was like a bike rider, motorcycle rider. He taught me a lot, but after six months, he basically broke it off and I was heartbroken. I was crying for three days. My mother couldn't understand what was going on. So she rifled through my drawers and found a letter that I had written to him, which I never delivered. So she basically just turned around and said, get your act together. You're going to have a hard life if you choose to do this. And we didn't speak much about it after that. I relate hard with Dan's sentiments here. We didn't speak much about it. Families who aren't angry or upset, but they simply don't want to talk about it. Makes the darkness inside me squirm in my belly. 
Were they supportive? It wasn't talked about. I moved out shortly after that. Uh, and then, then I started dating another man who ended up physically abusing me. We were in an extremely abusive relationship. I remember one time I called my father. He was willing to come over and try and beat this guy up. I put an end to it, but it took me, it took me a long time. I, I remember what it felt like to be powerless in that situation. There's a cost to all this. A cost to having a man hurt you intentionally. A cost to not being able to process these things with your family. There's a cost to every heartbreak. And Dan paid a lot. But then he met Daryl. In a lot of relationships, I know some people describe one person being more of the pursuer and one person being more of the pursued. Would you say that was the case for your relationship with Daryl? I would say it was more like daddy boy, where the daddy was in control and the boy was still learning about life and what was that the that life was going to give to him. He was definitely the pursuer, I would say. But I looked at it on more as, as a daddy boy type thing. If you're outside the BDSM and kink and leather scenes, the term daddy boy might rub you the wrong way. But as a proud kinkster, I'm here to tell you that the term actually has a long history. First off, let's be clear that a daddy boy dynamic involves two consenting adults. A boy in the kink scene doesn't refer to age, it refers to a kind of personality or a role a person takes on. A boy is often more submissive, seeking care and affection and giving back through service. A daddy, then, becomes the person providing care and guidance. But we were very much in love. In the kink world, I sometimes see daddy-boy relationships emerge between a person who's newly out, new to the scene, who needs some help feeling out what their queerness is, and a person who's been around for a while, someone who's willing to provide that relation that's so crucial in figuring out who we are. And what do they each get out of it? There's something special about the exchange of power. So it, you, it was very much reciprocal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was fairy tale for me. Every relationship you have in your life has a power dynamic. Kingsters just know how to harness it for pleasure, but also for empathy and for connection. Here I had this intelligent, handsome daddy who wanted me and made me feel great and was extremely caring. Yeah, I, I asked that because I uh, his language, he the frequency with which he says, I love you, is almost overwhelming. So for me, not having the other side of the letters, not being able to see how you were responding, I, I wondered if, if that was at all stifling. Not in the beginning. Dan tells me about one night early in their relationship when he visits Daryl in New York. This would have been in 1980, months before the angry letter from that first Christmas. Daryl takes Dan to a club called The Mine Shaft. And how did you get into the mine shaft? <laughs> we walked in and there was sort of like a, uh, an entry booth in the sense of, of uh, they looked you over, made sure that you conformed to their dress code, which was no shirt, at least. Uh, and if you had stuff that you had to take off, there was no sneakers, you had to have boots. Jeans were acceptable or 
underwear or a jock strap. Once you got past that and you paid your entrance fee, then you walked over to basically, oh, like it's in an old warehouse. Okay, so you basically walked over to a hole in the, in the ground and you climbed down a ladder, an old wooden ladder, and you just climbed down there. And I remember getting off the ladder and looking around and it was like a huge empty space with all these bathtubs around and um, I had never experienced water sports before but uh, I'm gonna leave well just a little bit to the imagination here <laughs> and what was it like being there with Daryl he was my protector okay again I was starry-eyed young man who had no real world experience of any of this stuff so I just felt very protected and he just laughed he just laughed because he knew I was a little apprehensive the first times that I've been to parties like that to clubs like that it's a it can be a stressful experience but that that was the daddy in him that came I, I felt protected again it was just another magical night we just laughed I mean we didn't play with anybody it was just enjoying the experience of watching everybody else around us doing their thing. If you're not a kinkster, you might find this hard to understand, maybe even a little off-putting, but if this isn't your kind of sex, I challenge you to look beyond the sex. Look deeper at Dan and Daryl's relationship. It can be really hard to be emotionally intimate, and sometimes for queer people, it can even be dangerous. I can see in stories like this trip to the mineshaft that Daryl gave Dan the space and the care to open up. And slowly, Dan was letting Daryl past his walls. But it's tough, too, with a relationship as intimate as this one, to overcome one huge barrier between the two. The distance. You can only open up and be yourself on the occasions when you're together. This is from one of Daryl's letters. I love you. It's been about a week since I left you. I miss you. I hope everything is going well with you. Hope the depressions haven't hit, or if they have, that they aren't so bad this time. Do you remember what depressions he was referring to? It was the fact that he was gone. I was left alone, emotionally vulnerable when he wasn't around. When he said depressions, it also alluded to the fact that, you know, I would treat my loneliness via alcohol. I would go to the bars and drink. So that was that was hard on me. 2S LGBTQ plus people, when compared to the general population, face higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, and a disproportionate number of queers struggle with alcohol abuse. Yes, it's great when you're together, but you know, to, to always feel, I wouldn't say miserable when you're not together, but when you're not together, it's painful. And that brings us back to Christmas 1980, the first Christmas. One of the challenges for me, like looking back at this, is that I only get the parts of the story between the times when you're together. And I don't know what happened at Christmas of 1980, but something happened. And afterwards, he sends you the angriest letter that is in the entire collection that I've received. I basically broke it off. Imagine this. You're in a relationship, 
a pretty new one, with someone who lives in another place. There's no Zoom, no Instagram, nothing aside from letters and the occasional phone call. After months apart, you finally get to travel to see the person you love. You arrive at their apartment, ready to share time. After your initial hello and greeting, you go to bed together. You strip down, and you're ready to get intimate, and then... And I broke it off while we were being intimate. The way you waited when I arrived there. This is from Daryl's angry letter, January 21st, 1981. And didn't tell me you wanted to not have sex until we were in bed with me having an erection is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. If I could, I would take it all back because I didn't handle it well. In fact, you've only been upstaged by Janet in that category. Just a reminder, Janet's Daryl's ex-wife. The only way I'll be able to get by that one is to put it into a place someday and try to make it funny. It's all a blur. All I know is I hurt him terribly. I'm ashamed of how I treated him. I mean, he basically got dressed, got up, and left. Immediately. In my relationships, especially the relationships I had just after coming out, I know I hurt people the same way Dan hurt Daryl. It's so hard trying to navigate your own sexual identity, your own sense of self-worth, your own inner darkness. It's easier sometimes just to slam those boxes shut. Of course, I still love you. But I am not certain, at least for the moment, whether I like you. As we know, Daryl did still like Dan. After this break, we're going to find out how the relationship got repaired, which may or may not involve a threesome. See you on the other side. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dane here. Thanks for listening. This podcast is fully independent. We aren't connected to a network or a distributor. It's just me and my friend-turned-producer, Matthew. It's taken us a lot of time to tell this story, partially because we needed the time to tell it the right way, but partially because we have limited resources, and we've had to squeeze in our podcast work around our jobs that actually pay us. And I have student loans, guys. I gotta pay off my student loans. We'd like to tell more stories like this one in the future. So, if you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more, consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get tons of perks, like extended interviews and Q&As. You can find our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash resurrectionpodcast. That's one S double R. If you prefer to make a one-time donation, the link is also down there in the show notes. Thanks so much for supporting independent art. Let's get back to the action. 
Many of us are taught through our childhoods about what a relationship is supposed to be like. It's the cookie-cutter template for a good life. Get the job, get the wife, get the kids, the house, the dog. And when you're 15 and you realize you're queer and that you don't want that life, or worse, that you can't have it, that's when the darkness burns a hole in your stomach. It's painful to realize that you can't just be what society expects you to be. But there's a flip side to this pain. There's a positive side. There's a magic that comes when you learn to push past those expectations and create your own. A queer magic. You see, while a breakup like Dan and Daryl's might be the end for most people, in the queer world, you get to make your own rules as to what your relationships will look like. And while Dan and Daryl may not have succeeded pulling off the classic coupling we're all used to, this wasn't the end of their relationship. It was just the beginning of a new iteration. But it didn't happen immediately. I see it emerge slowly in the letters Daryl sends through 1981. February 2nd, 1981. Danny, no, you are not a bad person. In fact, you are a very good person. It's just I feel we aren't good for each other right now. Our relationship hasn't shown much growth for quite a while. I love you. Daryl. After a gap in the letters, Dan and Daryl's communication slowly starts to resume. April 6th, 1981. Danny, thanks for your letter. It was good to have you sounding so upbeat and very, very busy. I knew you'd be better off out from under me. And they begin sharing details about their new relationships. Daryl falls for a few men over the coming years, each time jumping in with both feet. The reason I have stayed so long in Albuquerque this time is named Raymond Flores, a 27-year-old Chicano. Needless to say, Bill is more than gun-shy and not ready for a commitment. I know you won't believe this, Danny, but I've played it cool. And Dan falls for a man named Richard. The two would spend more than 10 years together. Danny, it is so wonderful to call you and have you sound so happy. I really believe the relationship with Richard is very good for you. That's fabulous. And as much as time slowed down, nearly standing still, during that fight in 1980, it picks back up again and pushes forward. It's relentless. Days and weeks transform to months. Hurt and humiliation transform to friendship and second chances. And suddenly, just as it had two years earlier, Time slows itself once more as Dan and Daryl meet once again, exactly two years after their breakup. Christmas, 1982. The second Christmas. And I feel blessed that he forgave me. We became family. We cared about each other. When I met Richard, he came into our lives together. In December 1982, Daryl heads back to Montreal to be with Dan and Dan's new partner, Richard. Two years earlier, Dan rejected Daryl's intimacy. He was afraid of prolonging the pain of their long-distance relationship. But this time around... And I'll tell you a little story about that on the very first time that Daryl came to stay with us. This time around, there were no expectations getting in the way of intimacy and the feelings of attraction. The three of us started to play together. And honestly, what better closure is there than a threesome with your ex and your new partner? It was almost like a mad fuck that he did with Richard. I mean, it was powerful and strong, and I don't know if he was fucking his anger out into Richard. I mean, Richard enjoyed it terribly. It was it was an extremely erotic evening, and we had fun and everything like that. It's just, that was my impression. 
I have a picture somewhere. I couldn't find it when I gave you the pictures of the aftermath. The clothes all over the kitchen splattered everywhere because that's where we made out was in the kitchen. It was there. That was the only time the three of us ever ever did that. But uh, in a way, in the back of my head, I've always thought that that was part and parcel of Daryl working his anger through with me. On both sides, for both Dan and Daryl, the Christmas of 1982 marked a shift in their relationship. Call it what you will, closure, forgiveness, repentance. But from this moment on, all the animosity was gone. Walls were down, boxes were open, lovers were now friends. Or maybe a better term for it. They were part of my extended family. You know, as we gays say, okay, we choose our family. And Daryl was certainly part of my family. And Daryl felt the same way. This is from a letter Daryl wrote a few weeks after the threesome. January 19th, 1983. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a fabulous, wonderful time I had in Montreal. You guys are super. You may never know how much I appreciate all of what you did for me. I think you guys are great. It's super to see a gay relationship that's working. Gives me more faith in this old world. And for Richard to accept me as a friend so readily really has made me feel good. I love you too. Don't ever forget it. And this is how the relationship was set to continue. This is how it should have continued for decades to come. Parallel lives lived in different cities with occasional comings together, pun intended. In the years that follow, these sort of trips do happen. Daryl even invites Dan and Richard to visit his family in small town Kansas for a massive Allen family reunion. But as much as their relationship had healed and transformed and was en route for happiness, and as much as Dan was able to share his most vulnerable parts, history had other plans. And history has a way of rewriting the past, taking memories of happiness, reconciliation, memories like that threesome on Christmas 1982, and giving them a cruel new frame. Because for Dan and Daryl, and for tens of thousands of queers, history had started writing a dark chapter. Gay men were already being diagnosed with a new illness called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency, an illness you and I know as AIDS. I never asked him if he knew when he came up that first time and we played. But I think that's when Richard got infected. It was through Daryl. Dan has told me repeatedly that he and his community never blamed anyone for infections just wasn't in their DNA. They wondered, but they never blamed each other. We found out that Richard was HIV positive in 86 because uh, he was he was going through another medical treatment and, and the doctor, again, in those days, doctors were terrified of HIV, so they would go behind your back and test you without your approval and, or knowledge which is illegal. And because Richard was going in for an operation, the doctor turned around and said, you know, you're HIV positive and we're going to have to do this differently. Once again, I have mixed feelings about including this part of the story. Honoring Dan's philosophy, I don't want to point any fingers or place any blame on these men. The terrible way societies treated people living with HIV and the onus to seek blame after diagnosis isn't something I want to reinforce. But HIV is a part of the story. 
And it's a part of the history of the queer community, and it's a part of the present-day queer community, and it will be a part of the future of the queer community. Because, and I'm about to get angry just for a minute, because HIV, which was a virus that used to have a 100% death rate for everyone who got it, not a 1% death rate, HIV didn't shut society down in its first months on the scene and get governments around the world to band together and fast-track the development of a vaccine like we did for COVID. HIV was a brand new virus for humans. But no, in the United States, this is the response HIV got. A senior advisor to President Ronald Reagan, Patrick Buchanan, wrote in the early 1980s that homosexuals, quote, have declared war upon nature and now nature is exacting an awful retribution. And it took years of die-ins and protests and political actions from groups like ACT UP and Queer Nation to get anyone to care. And still today, still there's no vaccine. Still, medications for treatment and prevention are expensive and inaccessible to many. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world still die from AIDS-related causes every year. It's still here. And Daryl and Richard and many others are not. So I'm going to talk about the virus, and I'm going to talk about sex, and I'm going to talk about death, and if you're looking for someone to blame, don't look at the queers whose governments left them to die for years. How do you think he would feel uh, knowing about this project and about having his status and his intimacies discussed so openly? I think he'd be okay with it. He was okay with it in the sense that, you know, he was living it every day. He, he was living with being, you know, on chemo. Uh, he was living with, you know, being sick. It was in your face because he was so visibly ill and he didn't give a shit. All he cared about was being around and being with the people he cared about. You've had a lot of challenging experiences. Is there a way that you practice resilience? Uh, um, Richard passed uh, in the 11th year of our relationship from AIDS. And I fell into a really big depression um, and also attempted suicide. So it, it it's not always been easy to pick yourself up, but uh, I've been able to manage so far. I'm still here. You know, yeah. I've gotten gray, so I'm still here. And by the time the virus really started impacting Daryl, he was with a man named Jonathan, a man who'd stay by his side until Daryl's death. And the Christmases that could have been, Christmases of time spent together, were replaced by the Christmases that had to be, Christmases of time left. Many of Daryl's goals and aspirations would never come to reach their full potential. Things like his play, Mustang Zero One, which he continued to work on. There's a passage I encountered in Mustang, in one of the earlier drafts he shared with Dan, before HIV became public knowledge. In the passage, one of the protagonists, One of the two men who fall in love reflect on the deaths, the mass deaths produced by World War II. In the Philippines, in Manila, there is a cemetery with many of our World War II dead, American dead. And at the center of the cemetery, there's a chapel. And in a circle surrounding this chapel are large marble slabs spaced about four feet apart. 
On both sides of each large slab are chiseled the names and ranks of all the American dead in the Pacific. Each name fills such a small space, and there are so many. It terrifies. As I walked around, I wanted to scream. What if they had lived? Where would we be then? He goes on to ask who's going to chisel his own name in one of the boxes if he dies. I'm struck by how Daryl wrote about the dead from the Second World War, but the sentiment could have just as easily referred to the people lost in the AIDS crisis. What if they had lived? Where would we be then? I'm struck by how well Daryl captures the impossible nature of comprehending the staggering number of lives lost, lives of ordinary people, each recognized simply by a name filling a small space. And I'll remind you that this is the story of the man behind just one such small space. And I'm struck by how Daryl could experience not one but two crises, two events of mass death in his lifetime, and still keep that attitude he held on the Christmas of 1990. He was always up. You might be down, but he was going to bring you up. The third Christmas. He didn't have time. He knew he didn't have much time left. So he wasn't going to waste his time by you being sad around him. Do you remember like a specific... I just remember Christmas dinner and, and, and him saying, you know, how much he loved being around everybody. And In December 1990, 10 years after their fight, and that angry letter. Dan and Daryl spend Christmas together again, as family. And this time, Daryl brings Jonathan. He was able to know that Jonathan wouldn't be left completely alone, that, that we would be there as long as Jonathan wanted us to be there. And then, less than a year later, in November 1991... Jonathan called me. I was at work, actually, I remember. And I had to run to the bathroom. That were like, like, where I worked was a huge open office space. And, I, and the bathrooms were way in the back. And it was like forever to go back there. But it wasn't, it wasn't like we were expecting it. But still, when you hear it, it's, it's hard. Daryl was living in Boston at the time of his death. There was a memorial in Boston, and I wasn't able to get there. And uh, I talked to Jonathan, and he was he was very brave. I mean, he he took over. He he, he did all the things you necessarily need to do when somebody passes. And they had a support system there. They didn't necessarily need me to be there. But Dan did send a fax for Daryl's memorial in Boston. Farewell, my friend. We met some 14 years ago in San Francisco. By chance, we found ourselves in the same restaurant. The restaurant was crowded. My table became available, and I invited you to join me. That was a wonderful evening and a wonderful beginning to our relationship. And that brings us to December 1991, Toronto. Jonathan came up for Christmas. The fourth Christmas. Jonathan, the partner Daryl left behind when he died, travels to Toronto 
to be with Dan. And he spent Christmas with us. And we had lots of people around. I have photos that I've given you. And he needed that more. Daryl wanted him to have some comfort after he was gone. Because everybody, everybody that's around you, when somebody passes, all of a sudden, you're all alone. And that's when it hits the hardest. But Daryl hadn't left Jonathan alone. In typical Daryl fashion, with all his protective and caring instincts, Daryl made sure Jonathan wouldn't be alone that Christmas. And in one of the photos Dan gave me, I see five men crammed onto a couch together. One man is sitting in another's lap. Dan is looking coyly at the camera, bit of a devious smile crackling under his big beard. And there... In the corner of the photo, squeezed half under someone else, is Jonathan. And he's laughing. He's with family. And sometimes I like to think about this moment and what's happening outside the frame of the photo. I think about what other madness Dan had going on in his apartment. And I like to think about what was happening in a tiny little town called Iona, my hometown, hundreds of kilometers away on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. Because on that Christmas... In 1991, while Dan and Jonathan trudged through a holiday marked by the absence of a loved one, my family was celebrating a Christmas with two new loved ones, only five months old, my twin brother and me. And this brings me back to that passage from Mustang about the stone slabs chiseled with the names of fallen soldiers. Each name fills such a small space, and there are so many. Just as Dan had made sure that Jonathan wasn't alone that Christmas, he also made sure that Daryl's story wasn't forgotten, that his name would be chiseled, so to speak. He saved every little bit of Daryl that he could, and he filled boxes. Boxes of Daryl. And 25 years later, he let me open these boxes. Now you might be thinking that this seems like the end of the story, but Dan gave Daryl's archive to me for a reason. And that's because I'm a history nerd. I don't stop researching until I've uncovered everything I can. And this is far from the end of the story. Sure, we've got a pretty good picture of Daryl's relationship with Dan, of those 12 years that they knew each other. But what about before? What shaped Daryl into this loving and compassionate and caring human? What drove him to write, to create? And what about his experience in the Vietnam War? There is so much left to uncover. And so I start searching for my next lead. In the months leading up to Daryl's death, Dan starts receiving letters from Cherryvale, Kansas, from a woman named B. Allen, a woman who turns out to be Daryl's mom. Here's one of B.'s letters, read by one of my friends. September 4th, 1991. Dear Danny, I had a call from him, and he was doing quite well, and will have another chemo treatment next week. My big regret is he is so far away and I cannot possibly come to help him. Your 94-year-old Kansas friend, B. Allen. After Daryl passes, B. keeps in touch with Dan, sending him Christmas cards and even the occasional letter. Buried among all the letters and photos and cards, I even find a newspaper clipping about B.'s 100th birthday. Then, one of the last letters in Dan's collection is from someone totally different, someone I haven't heard of before. Here's my friend reading the letter again. October 29th, 1998. Dear Dan, 
writing to let you know my mom passed away last night. She was 101 years old. I miss her very much. Daryl's sister, Lillian McDowell. Lillian McDowell. That's a lead. B. Allen and Lillian McDowell, with two names, suddenly the possibility of tracking down Daryl's family seems more realistic than ever. Cross-referencing their names, I'm able to find B's obituary, which lists the names of all nine of her children. That's right, nine children. I go through each one trying to find someone to get in touch with, but I'm either unable to find their contact info or met with yet another obituary. It turns out that Daryl was the youngest of nine. Each of his siblings, if they were still alive, would be in their late 80s or their 90s by now. But history nerds never give up. I start researching the children of Daryl's brothers and sisters to see if I can find someone who still lives in the Cherryvale, Kansas area. After a lot of searching, I find the email address of a woman named Debbie Eastman, who doesn't live far from Cherryvale, a woman who I believe to be Daryl's niece. I send an email. July 28th, 2019. Hi, Debbie. My name is Dane Stewart. I'm a playwright and an oral... At this point, I feel like I might be sending an email into the void. Or, worse, sending an email to a family in conservative America about a relative who died decades earlier from an illness he contracted while having sex with men. This could definitely backfire. Is it possible that you are Daryl's niece and that you may have known him? If so, I would love to chat with you about this project. And then I wait. For about an hour. I come out of a meeting at work and I have a missed call and a voicemail. You have one saved message. Dane, this is Debbie Eastman. And yes, I am Daryl Allen's niece. And I would be happy to talk to you about him. Next time on Resurrection. We will be departing soon. Before closing the boarding door, federal regulations... We go to Kansas. Resurrection is a team effort. If you want to help support us, please rate and review us. It really, really helps. Or consider becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash resurrection podcast. That's one S double R. The link's also down there in the show notes. Matthew Rogers is our editor and sound designer and music maker. Davide Kietzeze is the voice of Daryl's letters and scripts. Additional letters were voiced by Renee Hodgins. Hannah Sung is our executive producer. Our outro track is called Easy to Love, written for us by Clara Jones. Fact-checking in this episode by me and Katie Hill. Special thanks to Caitlin and Natalie Prest, Michelle Soicher, Isabel Deleuze, Katie Hill, Amanda Pelleggi, and Roger Galvez. Matthew Cariatsumeri is the platonic love of my life and my co-producer. Resurrection is written, researched, and hosted by me, Dane Stewart. The creation of this podcast was made possible thanks to the financial support of the Conseil des Arts de Montréal, the Conseil des Arts de l'Est Québec, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. How 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.